1: What about these people who can but don't pay their pastors a livable wage, a comfortable wage? Those churches are in sin.
2: Join us now for Grace to the Bay as we glorify the Lord Jesus Christ through sound expository teaching by our teacher, Dr. Roger Chen. Grace to the Bay is the radio outreach of Grace Church of the Bay Area located in San Mateo. If you are blessed by Dr. Chen's message and are looking for a church home, you're invited to come worship with them. Now, here is Dr. Chen.
1: Of all the people at that time, the Corinthians were the last people who could challenge Paul's ministry and apostleship and calling. And it's not that necessarily there were true Christians denying Paul's apostleship. It's Again, it's a hypothetical to further set up his statement about his apostleship being confirmed through the Corinthians' faith. Remember, guys, just look at yourselves. You know who I am. Paul goes on to say that because of his involvement in them, all the way back to evangelizing them and thus establishing the Corinthian church, they are, in fact, the seal. He uses that word, the seal of his apostleship. And that word that he uses is the seal that was put on containers of goods or letters to authenticate that what was inside was genuinely from the sender. Uh, You've seen this, right? A king, for example, would have a ring. It's a little signet in there, right? And they'd put that soft wax, and he would mark it with the ring. And if that crate or whatever it was or that letter arrived at its destination and that seal, that wax wasn't broken, you would know that it had not been tampered with, it is from the owner of that seal and the original contents of that letter or that package are still in there. Today we have a signature, a, a fingerprint, stamp of a notary, those types of things. But it was a significant proof that this was genuine, this was legal, this was real. And that's what Paul is saying about the Corinthian church. You are the stamp. They are the wax seal, That serves as a sign of his authority and God's using him. It is a confirmation and a guarantee that he is indeed an apostle. And to put this in even more spiritual terms, you could say that the Corinthians were God's stamp of approval on Paul's labor for him. So before even going into his rights, Paul establishes why he has those rights by rhetorically reminding the Corinthians that he is indeed an apostle. And you see this coming. You've read the passage that all of this establishes even the more powerful force of his saying, but I have chosen to forego those rights for your sake. But what are those rights? He lists a couple of them as we move on, but they ultimately revolve around the same point. So let's look at our second aspect, which is the prerogatives of apostleship. This is our second aspect of vocational ministry illustrated in apostleship. Look at verses 3 through 5. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? First of all, he says, my defense, who's examining Paul to warrant him to feel like he needs to defend himself. Again, it's not that the Corinthians as a whole are denying his apostleship, but there are some who may be trying to find fault, as there always are, right? There's always someone trying to find that loophole, find that crack in in someone's behavior, someone's character, perhaps to justify flexing their own Christian liberty. Oh, you're telling me I can't go to those temple feasts anymore? Well, let's look at you, Paul. Because as he writes that, as he wrote that, as we saw in chapter 8, undoubtedly there's some who are reading that who respond in their pride and say, yeah, but you, Paul, but you, you've heard that before. If you are lovingly, graciously trying to confront someone on their sin and their first response is, yeah, but you, walk away because that wall has come up like a brick wall. It's a wall of pride. You just need to come back later when they humble themselves. Because if their first response is, but you, then there's no point in the conversation is over. They're turning it into an argument, and maybe that's what Paul is addressing here. We don't know. As I mentioned, as I began in the church, as in the church today, maybe there were some back then who thought that Paul shouldn't be supported financially, and if he should, it should just be enough to scrape by, to keep his body functioning, not necessarily healthy, but alive, and definitely not enough to support a family should he choose to have one. Ultimately, this phrase serves as a bridge between the establishment of his apostleship and the associated rights. First, he says that he and other church leaders have the right to eat and drink. Now, obviously, nobody is denying his right to sustain his physical body. The grammar shows us that he's not referring to just eating and drinking, the type of eating and drinking that is necessary to stay alive, He is saying that church leaders and apostles have the right to eat and drink at the expense of the church. The church should pay them enough that they can afford food and drink. This is the right to the basic needs of life. To be maintained by, to be paid for by the churches they serve. And not just the bare minimum. Later Paul will address the same issue with Timothy. If you turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 5, we'll look at verses 17 through 18. Elders of the church who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. And we'll see this Old Testament command regarding the ox next week again in verse 9 where he actually explains it a little more. The idea of double honor is not just talking about pay. It doesn't translate directly to double pay. It means honor. But obviously, finances would play into that. Turn back a a few books to Galatians. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 6. The one who has taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. He's talking about the preacher, the pastor, the apostle. But he doesn't stop there. Look at the next two verses. 7 and 8. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh... The one who's selfish, the one who just amasses riches only for himself, will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Verses 7 through 8 applies to all all aspects of money as well as your pursuits. Not just how to pay a pastor, but the context of the previous verse in verse 6 is quite convicting. But this isn't just about an individual. This isn't just about the pastor himself, but also his family. In verse 5, Paul says that he also has the right, should he choose, to take along a believing wife. This is not about the right to be married. That's a given. Nobody's denying the apostles that right. There are Christian cults that deny that right heretical religions that deny that right to their church leaders, the right to be married. That's wrong and unbiblical and sinful. He's talking about taking along a wife. Look at the vocabulary. In other words, the married apostle or the married pastor or the married missionary shouldn't have to leave his wife at home because he can't afford to bring her along on his missionary journey to move to shepherd that other church to the pastor's conference or to Speak at another church's retreat. Now we know that Paul wasn't married at this time, but that's beside the point. He has the right to be married, and he has the right to have his salary be high enough that his wife does not have to work to pay for her existence in his life. At the end of verse 5, he says that all the apostles and brothers of the Lord and Cephas, who is Peter, have that same right. It's no surprise that Paul mentions Peter specifically here. To emphasize this point because remember back in chapter one they were claiming various people, there were these factions. Peter was one of the church leaders that they were saying, I am of Peter. We know that Peter was married because we're introduced to his mother in law in the gospels. The brothers of Jesus, we know that Jesus had earthly half brothers who are listed by name. In Mark chapter six and verse three, he also had half sisters. Apparently other leaders of the church as well as the other apostles were married. And if not like Paul, they definitely had the right to be married. And if they were to receive additional support so they could bring their wives along in their ministries, understanding now that for many of the apostles, it was missionary journeys. Their, their ministries were constantly moving. They were itinerant ministries. They were never in one place for too long. You know, although it's uncommon, but definitely more common than we'd like, pastors do get divorced. And one of the main contributing factors is that ministers of the gospel are not enough; don't have enough time to spend with their wives and their families. And although obvious to be thorough, the right to marry for the leader is only to a believing wife. He makes that clear. The Greek says sister wife. It simply means a Christian wife. They have the right to be married, but only to a Christian. Same right and limitation for all Christians in marriage. And so what he's saying is, I should be able to take a wife and bring her along on my missionary journeys In a way that I don't have to say, honey, you can come along, but only if, you know, while we're on the road, you do some knitting or you do some weaving and we sell those so that we can pay for your meals and your lodging. No, that's not what he's saying. And that should not be the case. He should be able to have a family and given a wage so that it's not just he doesn't have to work, but that he can support his whole family. These are the rights of an apostle. But then he goes on. And he explains that not only should the wife not have to work, the apostle or pastor should not have to have a second job. And that leads us to our third and final aspect of vocational ministry illustrated in apostleship. Thirdly, the provisions of apostleship, verses 6 and 7. Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? Both Barnabas and Paul worked secular jobs to pay their way on their missionary journey. We know from Acts 18 that Paul was a tent maker. He literally made tents, uh, which obviously was a more common item back then. Don't think how we would use tents today, primarily for camping or when you're setting something up at the farmer's market or something like that. Uh, the word could also refer to a leather worker. And this is where we get the, the term tent maker today, to refer to a pastor who is bivocational, a pastor who has a second job in, in addition to ministry in order to support himself. It's because Paul was literally a maker of tents. What Paul is asking is that since all church leaders have the right to be supported by churches, are he and Barnabas the only ones without that right? Of course the answer is no. He knows that. They know that. He's making a point. And the question is all the more pertinent because in reality, Paul and Bartimaeus did work secular jobs to support themselves. And perhaps it was even easier for the church to not pay the apostles because every Jew within Judaism was required to learn a trade as a youth, a trade, not just be educated. This is more than a an American high school education, right? You could go through high school and sometimes even college and still not have the expertise to do anything. They were specifically taught a trade, the idea of apprenticeship. And so they could easily say, yeah, these apostles, we don't need to pay them. We know they know a trade. They don't have to be trained. We know that he was trained as a blacksmith, that he was trained as an accountant. He was trained as a leather worker, whatever it is. So maybe in their minds, it's even easier. Keep the money for ourselves. Why? Because they, they can do it. They don't even need to apply for a job back then. They just start making stuff and then sell it. They can do it. And maybe it was even easier for them to not shift gears and start paying Paul and Barnabas because, hey, they're doing fine on their own. They're tent making. And then Paul goes on to explain why non-payment shouldn't be the norm. He explains that, in fact, all workers, no matter the occupation, are sustained by that work and pastors, apostles, missionaries should be no different. He gives three examples, the soldier, the farmer, and the shepherd. Not a spiritual shepherd, a literal shepherd. First, he asks, What soldier serves at his own expense? Earlier, perhaps before I explained why it was so, some of you probably got a little irked when I said my friend kind of denies that she's an American because of how the American tr- church tr- treated her. Because you enjoy being an American, you enjoy the freedoms that God has granted us through our government, which is not, most of which are not promised in Scripture, by the way, because we're a powerful nation. We're a first world nation. We're a developed nation. We influence the rest of the world. But do you think that would be the case if every soldier who enlists in the American military had to get a second job to pay for his machine gun, to pay for the ammunition, to pay for room and board, to pay for food, to pay for gas to fill up the Humvee in the middle of the desert? We would have no military. I'm thankful for our soldiers. I am thankful for our veterans, for their commitment but I don't think they would do it because it would have been impossible. We're going to send you to Baghdad so long as you can pay for the flight, and you need to find a job there. Pay for the gas, fill up the Humvees, the soap to wash it, windshield clean so you can see the enemy. Which vest do you want? How much can you afford? This one stops some bullets. This one I give you a discount. My wife made it on her spare time. It's made out of yarn. Just doesn't happen. The Roman soldiers were provided chariots and helmets and armor and spears and swords. And arrows and bows to shoot those arrows. He goes on, or a farmer with a vineyard. Does not a farmer sell what he grows and makes money and lives off of what he grows? Or at least sells what he makes from what he grows to sustain himself and his family? In addition to what he makes selling, he still he eats some of that fruit or eats some of that meat. Yes, in other words, his vineyard pays the bills. And finally, according to Jewish custom, a herdsman was allowed to drink the milk of the herd when he was hungry or far from home. Even if that milk was what they sold, he was allowed to drink some as his, to fill his stomach so he could survive. Next week, we'll see three more examples that Paul uses to illustrate the same principle. The principle being that all of these workers, including the pastor, should be able to live by the, that work, sustained through their jobs. You all are. So should the pastors and missionaries. I understand missionaries are a little different. It's churches that they don't serve directly that support them. Individuals, they don't serve directly that support them. And that's because they're serving in places where the church doesn't have enough money to support them. And even if the church gives sacrificially, it's not enough to pay the pastor to live in the same kind of home that they all live in. And even that, I mean, do you guys realize how blessed? Even that may be a foreign concept to you. Okay, It's not because a church is small. Because the offering is a dollar a week from the whole congregation. That's just how much money they had. That was the case where we lived. Everyone owned their own home because under communism, when communism fell, right, communism gives everyone their home that's part of the communist system, the socialist system. And so when democracy came, they all just kept their homes. So they don't pay rent. They don't pay a mortgage. At least they all own land. A lot of them sold some of that land. Uh, But their work, they make maybe a euro a day on the lowest level. We could go on. You're a teacher. You make a living teaching. So why shouldn't a minister make a living ministering? As a doctor, you pay your, your bills from the money given to you by the hospital. So why can't a pastor pay his bills from the money given to him by the church? As a salesman, you get paid for the product you sell. So why can't a preacher get paid for the sermons he preaches? It's all the same idea. Sometimes we like to spiritualize things and say, well, it's because he's doing the work of the Lord and so we shouldn't have to pay him. But I hope this passage is clear and he's going to continue next week. We need to understand that the pastor needs to be paid and the pastor needs to be paid well. The pastor needs to be paid in a way that his wife doesn't have to work to support him because the church cannot or will not. You know, it's, it's actually not a good practice for many churches to say, we're going to decide on a pastor's job and you try to find an equal level of position in the secular workplace and say, well, what, what's the average salary of someone like him in the secular world? And what is the average cost of living in this area? And then to subside on a, a pastor's salary that way, that doesn't work as we've seen. Principles like double honor. Wife shouldn't have to pay her own way. Especially here because the average salary and the average living expense means that if you pay the pastor that, the wife has to work. You don't want that. That's no good for anyone, not just for the pastor and his kids, but for the church as well. I know pastor's wives, the women in the church have almost no interaction with her. And part of that's good because her primary responsibility is her family, not the church. You understand that. What my wife does is very unique, and she only does it because it doesn't sacrifice time in her primary duty, which is to take care of her husband and her children and her home. But There are many pastors' wives who really, they don't disciple anyone. They were shocked that Jenny does, and I was shocked that they were shocked that Jenny does. And the reason is because in addition to taking care of their young children who still live at home, they work. Inside the home, they're doing it biblically. They're not working outside of the home. They do things that they can do in the spare time when the kids are doing homework or after the kids are in bed. A lot of things they're doing online. What about these people who can but don't pay their pastors a livable wage? a comfortable wage, those churches are in sin. Those churches are in sin. You wouldn't call it sin, but you would say something equivalent, some secular term to any company that does that. You can't do that. But some churches, it's not because of financial constraint, they choose to do that. And the tradition is, well, we don't want to tempt our pastor into the love of money. And so in some twisted form of irony that includes judgment and playing God, they justify it all. We don't want to tempt our pastor to love money all the while the whole church is exhibiting the love of money by how they're inadvertently punishing their pastor. You don't want to tempt him into the love of money, but you want to tempt him into being discontent. You want to tempt him into questioning his calling. He's a man. He might lust. Why don't you ban women from the church? He might be homosexual. Why don't you ban men from the church? How far do you go? Why don't you walk with him to Trader Joe's and Safeway and only only make sure that he only buys bland things because you don't want to tempt him to be a glutton. It just doesn't make sense. It should come as no surprise to you that theologically sound churches, including ours, predominantly pay their pastors well. And because of what we've seen, the reality, like it or not, and I understand some of you won't like this, is that the pastor will often be paid more than what most in the church make because of the principles that we've just seen especially in this area. And I, as a pastor, preaching to no other pastors or other churches or elders from other churches or, or, or commit finance committee members from other churches, I have no problem telling you everything I've just said because I make no apologies for God. I'm not going to stand up here and tell you what the Bible says and say, yeah, I know, I'm sorry, I know that you know, some of you. No. And don't you dare do that either. Some of you had had people do that. Some of your biggest arguments with your spouse is because they apologize for your behavior and you're like, what do you, why did you do that? Don't apologize for what I did. I did nothing wrong. Were you embarrassed by what I said? You're embarrassed by me? Don't apologize for God. Don't say sorry. I know, uh, yeah. No, this is what the Word of God says. We must preach it. We must say it. We must teach it. We must practice it. So whoever may be listening to this on a recording or on the live stream who is from another church, You need to pay your pastor, and you need to pay him well. I've told people this in in supporting missionaries. You have an iPad. Your kids have an Xbox. And somehow you want us to support that missionary so low that they can't have an Xbox. They can't have an iPad. Oh, they're a missionary. They shouldn't want those things. They're a missionary, so they shouldn't want those things. I'll tell you what, as far as the missionaries and pastors I know, if they had those things, they'd be a lot more content and grateful for those things than any of us are because they understand who that comes from. Not you, from the Lord. And they understand they don't deserve it, not because they chose to be a missionary or chose to be a pastor. They don't deserve it because the only thing they deserve is hell, you see. And that's the difference. And that's why people won't complain and say, I'm not raising enough support. You're not giving me enough. You're not paying me enough. Because they have mastered or they're striving to master the idea of being content and still serving despite circumstances. But that's not our place. It's not our job to teach them trials, to teach them to be content by withholding the means to survive and the means to enjoy life. We're not asking any pastors to get rich from their pay. I know that there are one or two very wealthy in our church, okay, multimillionaires. The rest of us, we would say, at least for the Bay Area, we're average, right? We're average, okay? We're, we're not the CEO. We're not making seven, eight-figure salaries. We're making high five-figures six figures. Some of you are married, so it helps double income. For this area, that's average. And as average, you can afford a car. You can definitely afford rent. Many of you afford a home. Some of you afford a home and an investment property. All of you afford at least in a vacation to somewhere drivable, if not flyable. And yet we say, no, the pastors shouldn't do that. The pastors don't get that. Why do missionaries come back so often? Just stay there. It's expensive. They serve in Asia. They serve in Europe. That's three, $4,000 just to fly back here. They just save their money. But you don't get to see your family once in a while. And for them, that's frankly not to burst your bubble as you enjoy spending time with these missionaries. That's work. They're busier here on furlough as they try to meet with all their supporters and raise more support. That's beside the point. Paul writes, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock? and does not use the milk of the flock. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm thankful that the members of this church respond biblically. The church as a whole responds biblically and understands these principles, not only for myself, but for any potential pastors as well as the missionaries we support. But if there are any individuals in our church who don't understand this or don't agree with it, I pray that you would help them to understand it that you would help them to recognize any peripheral sin issues, whether it's materialism or selfishness or just a misunderstanding of how you have designed the world and the church. May you change their minds and help them grow away from that wrong thinking. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here and around the world who are struggling to make ends meet because their churches are not paying them what they can. I pray for those elders, those in charge, whoever it is, that they would repent, that they would stop caving in to the fear of man of the congregation who make them stop paying as much because they look at the budget and they don't like the percentages. Father, help them to understand. Remove any thinking that we may have that the church is like a business or a for-profit organization or anything like that. Help us to give. Help us to support freely abundantly, sacrificially for your in Jesus name
2: this has been Grace to the Bay with Dr. Roger Chen for the next part in this series join us next week at this same time Grace to the Bay is the radio ministry of Grace Church of the Bay Area practicing and proclaiming the purity of biblical truth You are invited to join them for worship services in San Mateo, Sundays at 11 a.m. Visit gracebayarea.org for service times, directions, live streamed services, listen to archived sermons, or to make a tax-deductible donation to help keep Grace to the Bay on the air so that we can continue to share Pastor Roger's teaching with you each week. Again, that's gracebayarea.org.